Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Expeditors Podcast, where we look at the logistics and freight forwarding industry through the lens of a global logistics provider. I'm your host, Chris Parker, and today's topic, Southeast Asia Customs and its natural evolution to address the needs and expectations of global organizations, either bringing finished goods out from manufacturers or importing goods to a growing middle class. With me today is our Director of Customs in Southeast Asia, Manal Sakurbradnam. Manal, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It is a pleasure to have you. Um, so, Manal, you're you're based out of Singapore, but you're not from there. You're a U.S. citizen. You've moved around, sounds like, to a couple other places. Could you walk me through your career with Expeditors and before and, and what you do as Director of Customs in South Asia? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, I am based in Singapore, but the accent says otherwise, right? So, I am... <laughs> Uh, I, I am originally Lebanese, actually. I was born and raised there, and then I moved to the U.S., uh, as a lot of people did uh, moving out of Lebanon uh, for mm. various reasons in that time. Mm. Uh, so my parents took us to the U.S., and I was there, um, became a U.S. citizen, so I've lived more than half of my life in the U.S. Um, I started with expeditors in New York. Uh, I was a management trainee, is what we call, and just kind of did the rounds across the different, uh, the different departments and landed in customs and compliance. Um, and then from there, um, was there about five years and then moved to London, uh, where I got to work with a great team there as the director of trade compliance mm -hmm. uh, for expeditors in Europe. Uh, and then uh, decided to move to New Zealand, where my husband's from, uh, and made it uh, back to Singapore within a few months where I joined the customs team here. So, uh, so it's been exciting. And so what I do, uh, I've always been in customs, uh, over 13 years now with expeditors. Um, you know, it's one of those things when you get into customs, you just kind of fall in love with it uh, mm -hmm. and you just don't want to ever leave it. So you don't see yourself anywhere else. So um, going into customs in uh, in South Asia, um, you know, I oversee the operation um, uh, day to day with our teams. Um, we've got obviously the white team all across uh, overseeing our our growth, our business development and just making sure that we are running compliantly uh, and basically meeting our clients expectations from a brokerage perspective. So when you said you fell into customs, uh, what about it held on to you? You know, I think it's the um, the fact that it's into everything. So when you think mm. of supply chain, you have the ocean uh, movements, your air movements, you've got, you know, your local deliveries, your warehousing distribution, well, you know, every aspect of it. Customs exists in just about all of it. And right. I'm a very nosy person uh, and <laughs> it is absolutely not a lie. I get into what I'm not supposed to get into and customs allows me to do that and have mm. an angle to do that. And it's quite interesting because it changes every day. You've got different uh, regulations, but then you've got different nuances to the regulations as well. Um, and it just keeps it interesting. So mm -hmm. it's just that constant change that kind of keeps me coming back and, and in customs. Yeah. And one of the changes is something that we're talking about today is Southeast Asia customs in general is changing. Um, could you walk me through or at least paint a landscape here of what Southeast Asia customs oh. uh, has been like for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so? Uh, and then what are the what are the some signs that, you know, customs regulatory standards are changing now or, or progressing or evolving? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And actually, um, a lot of the evolution in customs, I guess, in in, uh, in markets is very much based on the uh, country 
evolution and development. And mm-hmm. so when we look at Southeast Asia uh, in the last few years, uh, it has and continues to become a, uh, a highly emerging market. Uh, you've got various populations, you've got you know the, the different um, ethnicities, but you also have various regulatory bodies and expectations. And um, you've got a very uh, growing middle class. Um, you have, uh, you know, you've got a lot of manufacturing um, that is moving to Southeast Asia. There's a lot of infrastructure that's being built up uh, through uh, by governments. There's a lot of um, a lot of factors that are making it a very enticing market mm-hmm. for uh, for uh, organizations, whether local or global, to really come into this market. And that need uh, and that growth is what drives uh, the need for uh, evolution from a customs perspective as well. Uh, because of that growth, because of that shift, uh, then we see um, a greater trade facilitation required uh, in these markets. And we see uh, authorities now showing, you know, uh, greater interest and collaboration with authorities overseas as well. Right. Mm. So uh, that leads to uh, that leads to more free trade agreements, cooperation, partnerships and frameworks getting set up in order to facilitate uh, that transition and that growth into Southeast Asia. Um, there's only, you know, there's a few reasons why a global organization would move somewhere uh, and would shift all of their manufacturing or or uh, sourcing of raw materials or whatever it may be. And one of those is the ease of trade uh, and, um, and how uh, attractive uh, is it for them and the benefits that they receive. So mm-hmm. Southeast Asia has done, uh, most countries in South Southeast Asia have done a good job of, um, of picking up on that trend and working towards uh, towards facilitating that trade, like I said. Can you think of any, I guess, recent uh, events or any any kind of agreements that have happened lately that really, I guess, signify that, that things are changing? There is probably a few examples of that. Sure. Uh, one that comes straight to mind and only because we did a couple of seminars on it on this end, right, <laughs> is uh, the Vietnam EU free trade agreement. Uh, so that came into place a couple of years ago now, maybe uh, a little less than that. And um, the the goal of it is to, again, provide greater benefit for European companies moving uh, into moving uh, their production and their manufacturing into Vietnam. Uh, but also it provides for a uh, requirement in order for these European organizations. Uh, and the requirements are placed upon Vietnam. Vietnam, right? Uh, and and expecting uh, obviously Vietnam to provide the same level of compliance mm-hmm. uh, that European organizations enjoy in Europe uh, to be able to function again correctly, compliantly in Vietnam. This is the kind of example uh, where you see overseas governments influencing what is happening uh, and the standards that are put into place in countries in Southeast Asia. And that happens quite globally, right? Uh, that happens really on a, probably on a daily basis around the world. Um, and this is how 
countries evolve and this is how countries grow right and they move from a uh, from a uh, you know emerging market to now a developed country and so on so so this is how how uh, how these things i guess function in the background yeah so and that leads me to the next question is like what are some of the I guess the, the factors or conditions that are really contributing to this to this change. Um, why is this happening? The quickest answer to give is there's trade wars are impacting this shift massively. Totally. Um, you know, there is a need to find um, places where you can get, uh, you know, lower duties, uh, places where it's, uh, you know, when let's say you're manufacturing in Southeast Asia and then you're importing into the U.S., for example, right? You're going to more likely to enjoy lower duties uh, than if you were coming from another place in Asia at the, at the time, right? Uh, there's also cost minimization uh, benefits, right? You are dealing with a labor market that although inflation is increasing labor prices, that's happening around the world. So Southeast Asia, specifically in certain countries, continues to be markets where you can get labor for a lower uh, lower cost. Uh, so that makes it appealing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it could also be cheaper to, uh, to source raw materials um, because there's a lot of natural resources, in fact, in Southeast Asia. And so, again, that shift is organizations looking to lower their costs in such a volatile market, right? Um, you look at supply chain globally now, margins are really, really squeezed, right? Uh, transportation costs because of the uh, the war in Ukraine, because of, you know, which is impacting fuel prices as well. Right. All of that is increasing cost of production and increasing the cost of doing business. And um, just looking for any savings uh, is what's really leading a lot of companies into Southeast Asia. Um, you know, on top of that, you also have a, a youthful population, in most hmm. countries. Hmm. Um, not only is it a growing middle class, but you also have young, capable employees that are ready to go to work. And so you have a, you know, the, the market is saturated with people looking for work, which is great for organizations because recruitment and keeping that talent um, becomes a little bit easier, right? Than in other places where they might, might not be the case, where you have maybe an aging population. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's the gist of why it's happening, right? Well, I talked about the, the, the rise in fuel prices, uh, as mm-hmm. well, right? And, and that's going to continue, I think, to impact, um, to impact things quite widely across, across, uh, the world, but also across the region here. And, you know, maybe we'll get to this in a little bit, but that might be one of the issues that we're facing as well. Yeah. So, okay. So you're talking about, um, sourcing changes, uh, more manufacturing, more affordable labor. Um, that's a lot of outputs, right. Coming out of South Asia. Is there a need for our imports changing at all too? Yes. Yeah. You know, along with the fact that you have a, you know, it kind of goes hand in hand. When mm-hmm. when the youth is now working and making money, that means they have a disposable income <laughs> and which makes that consumer market a lot more attractive as well, right. because they are looking for the latest uh, trends. They're looking for the latest technology and they're willing to pay for it because guess what? They now have the money to do that. So yes, from an import perspective, it actually is growing as well. Now, take the consumer part away, the import market is growing because also you've got 
if manufacturing is in Southeast Asia, you still have to import sometimes raw material uh, from other places, right? So For again, sure. it's very much hand in hand, uh, the import and export piece. You import mm-hmm. in order to re-export as well to the to the rest of the world. Okay, so then what does... Um what does evolution look like? What does changing to meet these expectations um, to to do things compliantly and to meet a certain standard? What does that look like or what needs to be done for some of these logistics providers? Yeah, well, so there is a greater need for compliance and um, the compliance levels vary across the board. And mm-hmm. when you when global organizations um, move into Southeast Asia, they are looking for uh, and they have to meet, in fact, the same standards as their home countries, for example. Uh, Take the U.S. You have a U.S. organization. Um, they still have to follow the FCPA laws everywhere, no matter where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, is also leading local governments to pay greater attention to the compliance area, which then in turn commits local uh, brokers, global brokers, whomever is you know providing logistics services in that market to have the same standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to do that, you know there's a lot of investment that needs to take place. So there's a lot of investment that needs to take place in processes and refining those uh, in you know, infusing technology and adopting the latest, uh, the latest technology uh, in order to provide uh, not only the visibility, but also the accuracy of the declaration, whether it's on the import or export end. Um, there is also uh, the, the possibility that, you know, a broker may need to, in fact, uh, become a partner with a greater organization because right. of the cost uh, that it takes to get to a certain level that is required in order to continue to compete. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we see that happening, and that's probably going to happen a little bit more. That's not a bad thing, though. And, and I'll tell you why, because yeah, as a global broker ourselves, you know, we find it it's quite necessary, in fact, to have that local uh, that local understanding and familiarity, um, because it is at the end of the day still an in-country service, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're still providing whether it's an export or import brokerage piece. It's still at that country level, uh, and so it's really important to continue to to harbor that knowledge, that local knowledge. Uh, and just infuse it with that global compliance flavor. Do you see a lot of growing pains happening then? Where can mistakes happen? And what do those look like right now? Yeah, you know, mistakes um, mistakes can happen, as you said. They happen to everyone. And in one of the, one of the pieces that is growing as well, which I think is uh, impacting uh, a lot of brokers, maybe even importers in many countries, is greater enforcement. Uh, mm. So there's always been regulations right uh, in place and it's whether they were enforced or not Uh, and that's that's what's starting to impact uh, importers and brokers alike uh, and exporters so um, last couple years we've had a really tough couple of years, right? We've had COVID, maybe it's almost three years now. Gosh, we keep saying uh, two years and it's, I think three <laughs> yeah. years, right? Uh, <laughs> time so, doesn't mean anything. Yeah, so yeah, who knows what time or what day it is anymore. But, you know, we've been stuck in this COVID um, 
COVID circle. And, uh, you know, and then we also then uh, had uh, have trade wars in Ukraine and Brexit and all of this stuff. And what's happening is that revenue is getting lost. So when revenue gets lost and goes down, governments look for ways to do that. And right. a lot of times the customs authorities department sits within the revenue department or ministries of finance for a yeah. reason, because they're revenue generating, right? Uh, and what best, better way to increase revenue than to enforce some of the regulations that you have. So we see that happening. And so where, where maybe folks didn't realize that there's certain regulations in place or maybe where enforcement was not quite up before, it's now increased. And so mm -hmm. importers, brokers alike, I think have to watch out for that, have to truly understand the risks that come with operating uh, and with, uh, with um, having any brokerage activity in those different markets. And these regulations vary across markets, right? Um, so keeping that in mind is key uh, as they continue to move into Southeast Asia. I imagine as changes are happening, like we need to be updated. The, the brokerage community uh, and, and the business community at large needs to be updated on these kinds of things. How do we know that we're working um, in an up-to-date fashion? Um, and I'm, I'm trying to get at technology here. What does a technology investment look like in customs? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, what do you do uh, to know you're, you're operating compliantly and you're working compliantly, I'll tell you, you got to ask questions and you've got to do the research and you, you really got to be nosy the like you, right? got to be nosy. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, uh, the thing is you, you do have to invest in things like technology because mm -hmm. technology is not what, uh, what makes you compliant. It's the right use of technology, right? Mm -hmm. So things like ensuring that um, you have automated your declaration process as much as possible. So that data that you are putting forth for an import or an export declaration is truly correct. Eliminating and reducing as much of that human entry element as possible and allowing that human brain, right, <laughs> to work and to focus on the knowledge piece of things, right? Um, again, freeing up, I always say our brains are like uh, are like a computer, right? Uh, computer memory. And, you know, the less you can use up space-wise for data entry, the better, because mm -hmm. then we can truly use uh, that space, right, to work on the knowledge piece. And I think that's what needs to happen. Another thing is making sure you're partnering with the right with the right uh, parties. So having the right brokers or logistics providers who are integrated again from a technology perspective with customs authorities or with third-party customs providers. What does that do? That allows again that accuracy of the data to flow through from A to Z correctly with mm -hmm. least interruption. Um, and it allows you then to uh, be able to automate some of the requirements uh, that are, you know, based maybe on the classification, maybe I need a license that is required, right? Uh, or um, maybe I need to, um, uh, maybe I need to get a certain, apply a certain free trade agreement, whatever it may be, you can automate a lot more of that piece. Uh, so again, you are making sure 
you're getting not only the most compliant declaration, but you're getting the most cost efficient uh, declaration and, and uh, the benefits that you can gain from that. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, uh, there's also the, uh, the fact that you get that data back from customers. Now, very key, being able to audit yourself, right? Being able to conduct these reviews and making sure that your partners are conducting these reviews is just as key. And that's what's going to allow you from technological perspective, again, having those, what we call entry details, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Back from customs authorities allows you to use that uh, to create a more of a risk-based review approach um, because otherwise you don't have that data in your system. Uh, so, so those are some of the aspects that technology can provide in way of compliance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, every declaration has the same elements. Every declaration has, you know, the same uh, has invoices that need to be entered, different line items, different values, pretty much the same elements, along with the reference data, which is your classifications, your countries of origin, and so on. So, automating all of that takes away, you know, the the possibility or eliminates the possibility for errors. As Southeast Asian countries are changing their, you know, customs frameworks or their their standards to meet more of a, I guess, like global expectations, um, and they're they're enforcing more, they're they're increasing their enforcement. Um, do you see a kind of like a tumultuous time ahead? Is it kind of hectic right now, or are things kind of smooth? It's just a natural progression right now. What do you? What's your take on it right now? I wish things were smooth. You know, I don't think things are smooth anywhere in the supply chain, not to sound negative, right? <laughs> it's, it's a very, very chaotic time for everybody. Sure, sure. Um, and But in a good way, I think, you know, this market is going to continue to grow, uh, yeah. which is a good thing. But there is some volatility, I guess, sure. ahead, right? Sure. Again, we talked about fuel prices increasing, uh, that's going to affect the price and the cost of doing business, not only for importers and exporters, but for brokers as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that piece of it. Um, you also have uh, growing regulatory uh, changes and standards. So, you know, who is, you know, not only need to know who you are, but you also need to understand, you know, who are you dealing with? And who is your partner's partner, right? Uh, and so that cost of due diligence as well, which is extremely important, but you know a reality also. Uh, and so I think that the, those growing demands uh, and expectations again will create a greater increase in the cost uh, again of doing business. So then, in order to avoid this volatility, you know, importers will have to be looking for good, strong partners uh, to work with. What are you, what would you say are the qualities that a strong customs partner has? Yeah. You know, I think someone that has consistency at, at the core and compliance mm-hmm. at the core. And, you know, one of the ways to do that is to make sure that your partner has a wider reach. It's really hard to manage so many countries and so many different entities and parties. And like we Mm -hmm. said, the demands are growing uh, and that due diligence process of your partners is becoming bigger and bigger. And so rationalizing the amount of providers you have is key uh, to be able to continue to have control uh, over uh, your operation. So, you know, reducing the parties, 
uh, that your the brokers maybe that you're dealing with will lead to greater communication benefits, more streamlined approach. It'll also lead to, again, that consistent process across countries. Now, regulations may change. And that is absolutely taken into consideration and should be taken into consideration when looking for a partner. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean there couldn't, uh, there can't be an overarching, uh, consistent process across all of the countries. Um, it improves the compliance posture to have maybe a single broker. Uh, and I know a single broker is a kind of a hard concept to grasp. Um, yeah, what does that so mean? Yeah, so it's kind of it's basically having one broker dealing with all your work across maybe a country or a region or a, a whole globe, right? Um, mm -hmm. That comes with its own risks as well. And so we, you know, what I would say is, if I was in the importer's shoes, uh, I would have a single broker, but I would definitely have a backup uh, just in <laughs> case. Uh, sure, sure. It's always good. But the, the thing with brokerage as well is if you have a single broker, then at least you know they're going to uh, follow your processes the same way everywhere. They're going to follow mm. your expectation and you're able to, you know, to cherry pick who you want to work with uh, and partner with someone that has, you know, the same values that you do. And I think that is absolutely key not only values in the way of, you know, doing things compliantly, which is extremely important, but also in the, with the values of, you know, how you treat your employees, right? Um, how you react to situations. So all of that is, is quite key when you're looking for a partner in order to be successful, not only I would say in Southeast Asia, but really anywhere in the world, uh, just mm -hmm. the basics uh, of having that. Um, you know, I could talk for, for, uh, for ages, Chris. One of the things as well that comes with doing that is you are able to have a uniform way to receive your data mm. and in order to have visibility truly to what is happening. Um, if you have to deal with 20 different providers, it makes it really, really tough. Uh, to manage things. Uh, but if you have, you know, the same provider or maybe two providers maximum across, then again, it makes it a lot easier. It makes you more agile in uh, changing your expectations and your, um, your procedures. I've got one last question for you, and I feel like it's kind of a big one. <laughs> it's going to okay, go like three parts go to on it. Then. So. <laughs> Hit me um, with it, Chris. Yeah. So I'm curious to understand as these uh, regulations are evolving, as they're progressing, as they're growing, what's at stake with that change? And then down the line, what does that growth look like for people in South Asia affecting consumers? I'm, I'm really curious too, is like, why should consumers care or be excited or, um, or at least pay attention to this change in customs? Mm. Um, it's a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> yeah, I even forgot the first part of your question. That was such a long question. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's start with the last piece, right? Yeah. Why should consumers care? Consumers, I think, should care because they're potentially going to be able to get lower, uh, lower prices for goods because of this shift, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at your big organizations, you kind of should be rooting for them and say, yes, go into Southeast Asia because that means, that may mean um, I'm going to have to pay less, right? For some of the products uh, sure. that you're selling to me. But I think also we have to think of the more altruistic, bigger goal is you're empowering an emerging market. 
by supporting mm. uh, this move or this shift as a consumer. Mm-hmm. You're empowering, yeah. uh, you know, young individuals in these countries by, prov- by you know, supporting organizations that are providing them an opportunity uh, to grow as individuals. And, and I think that's, you know, the, the more altruistic goal, but I think that, you know, plays a big deal when we are looking at how global the world is right now and how we really want everyone to do well. You know, we want women to get into the workforce more. And that is happening because of this, this growth in Southeast Asia, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We want to empower um, you know, the, the young to take on bigger positions and, and to grow. And this is one way that a consumer can do that by supporting the output uh, as well as the input into Southeast Asia. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's the la- last part of your, your question. Um, the first part of your question is, yeah, what's at you stake? know, what's at stake? Um, I think, you know, at stake is a, a lot of populations or a lot of countries that have put a lot of investment into educating their people, into developing the infrastructure, into adopting uh, digital transformation, into basically uh, supporting this rapid urbanization, right? Mm-hmm. And what's at stake is that all of that effort, um, you know, could go, uh, could be for nothing if the growth yeah. doesn't follow, right? right, right. Um, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. What do you do first? And you can't have you know, people coming into your country and organizations coming into your country without you know, having the right infrastructure in place. And so they've mm-hmm. done that. A lot of the countries here continue to invest and will continue to invest in the future. Um, and it's key that there is that demand, uh, that growth being met. Right. Uh, and that things do come in and that, you know, countries and organizations, sorry, uh, do think of Southeast Asia as a place to go. Um, I think that will continue to happen. Right. Um, positivity says, you know what, it's going to be a uh, even a, gro- a much, much more growing market. And um, we don't see that, uh, you know, changing anytime soon, hopefully. Well, it certainly sounds like an exciting time. Uh, I hope it doesn't get too hectic on your side of things. I love it, uh, hectic. I- it's okay. <laughs> That's all good. As yeah, long as it's, it's positive, hectic, then then yeah. it's all good. <laughs> it's good to be busy than bored, right? Exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Manal, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much for having me again. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've got questions or want to learn more about today's topic, check out the show notes for more information. And before you go, make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast app you're using so you won't miss the next episode. To learn more about Expediters, you can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or simply visit us at expediters.com. Take care, and I'll see you next time. Expediters.